Okay, if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we'll be in chapter number 6 today. The book of Hebrews, chapter number 6. If you were to go to Rome and go to the catacombs in Rome, you would see three prominent symbols on the graves of the early Christians. You would see the symbol of the dove, you would see the symbol of the fish, and you would see the symbol of the anchor. Uh, The dove would look something like, we've got a slide here, I think. There's a picture of a dove on a catacomb. Now, why would you think they would put the dove on their gravesite? What's the dove represent? The same thing it represents for Calvary Chapel, the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the dove that came down upon, descended upon Jesus was the Spirit of God. And so that, obviously we understand that symbol. But then the fish, why the fish? That would be the next symbol. And you've seen these on cars before. Well, the fish, the, the Greek word for fish, ixtus, forms an acrostic. And, and the acrostic is you've got the iota there. You see the first letter there, R-I, it's the iota which stands for Jesus, Jesus. Then you got the chi, or the X, which, which stands for Christos. And then you got the theta, which stands for God, Theos, which stands for God. And then you got the Upsilon, which stands for Huios, which means son. And then you got the Sigma, which stands for Soter, which means Savior. So you've got Jesus, Christ, God, Son, and Savior. So that's what, why you see the fish on the graves. Well, the next prominent uh, symbol that you would see, you would see it on several of the graves, would be not only just the fish, but the anchor too. See the anchor there? Now, why, why do you think the anchor would be there? Obvious reasons, right? Because our hope in Jesus Christ is the anchor of our soul. I mean, that's, that's where we're anchored. We're, we hang on to him, and, and he hangs on to us, and, and that's how we make it through uh, this difficult life and, and end up uh, in, in heaven with the Lord. But in last week's study, if you remember, and it was a tough study last week, the author gave us this terrifying warning uh, uh, to those who call themselves Christians but who aren't really anchored in the Lord. I mean, they call themselves Christians, but he's really not their anchor. They're not really anchored in that hope of Jesus Christ. And... and so they're, they're different. They really don't want, remember he, he kind of spelled out how they were different. They, did, they didn't really care for the, the meat of the word. All they cared for the, was for the milk of the word. Word. They cared about the gospel, but they didn't, didn't want to go any further than that. They came to church. Ex, they were exposed to, light, to, to the light of God. They know all about the gift of salvation. But like a dog returns to its vomit or a sow returns to her sty, they returned they fall away and they go back into the religion or back into the world. And so there's this terrible warning that, you know, that there's nothing left for, that Christ can do for them if they fall away. And the reason they fall away is because they aren't by nature really children of God. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Now, we had a lot of bad news last week. The good news is you're not one of those people. That's the good news. If you're one of those people, raise your hand. If we want to get you, don't, no, don't raise your hand. <laughs> My shirt's coming undone here. Uh, so you're not one of those people. Listen to, listen to what Paul says in the, in the very next verse, in verse number nine. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, 
Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. You see what he's saying there? Even though I had to speak to you really harshly, and I had to warn those who really aren't saved, we, I'm confident of better things uh, concerning you because you possess the things that accompany salvation. Now, that's, that's how you can kind of tell if you're in the right group because you possess the things that accompany salvation. Even though we speak in this matter, and I had to warn you, you possess the things that accompany salvation. Well, what, what accompanies salvation? What things accompany salvation? Well, he told us back in verse number 1, remember back in verse number 1, the basic things, the elementary principles, uh, the, the repentance from dead works. Look at verse number, yeah, I believe it's verse number 1. Yeah, verse number 1, repentance from dead works. Uh, faith towards God, you possess that. That accompanies salvation. You possess uh, the doctrine of baptism. You've, most of you have been baptized. Uh, you've had, you might not have had the hands laid upon you, but you've received the Spirit, and you have spiritual gifts. You know about the resurrection of, dead, of the dead. You know about the resurrection, and you know about hell. And so, so you have some of these things. You're born again. I mean, if, you've, if you're truly anchored in Jesus Christ, then you've been born again. I mean, and, and, and so you've been a partaker of the divine nature. You actually have been given the seed of God implanted in you. Uh, Paul says in Corinthians chapter 1, he tells us, he says, we have been given the spirit of God in our hearts as a guarantee of our salvation. So if, if you've been saved, then you've been given the Spirit of God. And I say this all the time. If you've been given the Spirit of God, you know you have the Spirit of God. If you don't know you have the Spirit of God, you don't have the Spirit of God. So if you're in doubt about that, you're probably not saved. And, and the Spirit, you know, the, we, we sense the Spirit in so many ways. We, we sense the Spirit when we're studying His Word. We sense the Spirit in the gifts that He gives us. We sense the Spirit in the power that we have when we minister. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we sense the Spirit of God, and we know that we have the Spirit of God. And so you have the Spirit of God. Uh, you have a desire for more than just the milk of the Word. And, and most of you have that desire. You're here to get meat today, hopefully, and, and go beyond just the gospel. And, and, you've, and the reason you do that is because you're not just hearers of the word, you're doers of the word. You're exercising what you learn. Now, I'll tell you right now, if you're sitting here and you never exercise any of these things you learn, then you're, then you're, you're either a baby Christian and, and stagnant in your faith or you're not saved at all. So at some point, you should want meat. And, and the, way, the reason you want meat is because you're growing and you're exercising and, and you've become a doer of the word. Well, now the fourth reason or the fourth thing that accompanies salvation, listen carefully now, this almost sounds in opposition to what I've been saying in the last few weeks. The fourth thing that accompanies salvation is your good works. Your good works. See, that's where some of you have misunderstood me. I've said all along that you can't add anything to what Jesus Christ has done to, for you on the cross. You have been perfected forever. You can't add to your relationship to Jesus Christ. You can't add to your fellowship with Jesus Christ. You can't add to how much he loves you. You can't add to, to how perfected you will be forever. You can't add to any of that. But if you've been born again, 
then your good faith is going to produce works because faith without works is dead. You will have good works if you have real faith. And so, so that's one of the things that accompany salvation. Now, what do our works look like? I mean, if, if you have good works, what does it mean we have good works? What, what are the good works that we should do? Well, he tells us right here in chapter number, I mean, in, in chapter number 6, verse number 10. He says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and still minister to the saints. What's the good works that we do? We minister to one another. That's the good work that we do. Our work is to minister to the saints. And, and when we do that work, who else are we ministering to? We're ministering to the Lord. Because when you serve one another, when we serve one another, it is a labor of love towards the Lord. You know, when you do something good, you're showing the Lord that you love him. I, I tell you this, we can sit up here all week long and we can sing about how much we love the Lord. But we don't truly love the Lord if we aren't ministering to one another. I mean, we, that's, that's how we show the Lord that we love him. Remember what Jesus told Peter right before he ascended to heaven. He, he, had, he was resurrected from the dead and he was, he was uh, on the coast uh, visiting the disciples. And remember what he said to Peter. He asked Peter, do you love me? You remember that? He asked him three times. You know why he asked him three times? Because he, Peter had denied him three times. And what did Jesus say each time when Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you? He said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Minister to one another. That's how you show me you love me. And that's why I don't believe that spectator Christianity or isolationist Christianity is real Christianity. It's not. I mean, just think about it. I mean, if you're a spectator and all you do is come sit in a pew every once in a while and, and that's all you do and then you go back to your home and you live your life totally for yourself, is that what, Paul, what the author of Hebrews is describing here, that, you, that you're to minister to the saints and you do still minister? No. I mean, you can't minister to anybody else if you're isolated from everybody else, and that's why I don't believe in this idea of isolationist Christianity. I mean, this long, what some people call long-ranger Christianity. You know, I run into people all the time that, that uh, don't belong to any church and they're not going to belong to any church. They say they don't have to belong to any church. In fact, they say, you know, churches are, are all apostate. There's no such thing as, as a real church, uh, an or, a real organized church. And so, uh, I mean, their attitude is this. Their attitude is I can stay at home with my family and I can do church at home. And I don't have to go to that imperfect church or that church with all those imperfections or with all those imperfect people. What, I mean, that's, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? Because none of us are perfect. But here's the problem. What's the, world, what's the word church mean? What's it mean? Ecclesia. It's the word ecclesia. It means the assembly of the called out ones. 
It means those, it, it, the very word means assembly. Now, how can you be part of a church if you're not part of an assembly? In other, and, and, and how can you minister to the saints and do minister to the saints if you're not part of the body of Christ, if you're not part of the assembly? So, so there's, there's no place for isolationist Christianity. There's no place for spectator Christianity because if you love Christ, you're going to want to minister to the saints. And, and you can't do that if you're all alone living by yourself. There's no way you can do that. I understand why some people feel like that. I mean, there are a lot of apostate churches in the world today. There are a lot of apostate denominations. But in, I, don't, I believe in every city, almost every city, God has a place for you to go that's not apostate. Is everybody in that church going to be perfect? No. And, and if, if they are, then when you get there, it's not going to be perfect any longer. So, so there's no such thing as a perfect church. And I understand in some places that, that you know, the home church is the only way to go. I, I was, saw an article, I read an article the other day about the churches in Cuba that they have found now, they've kind of opened things up over there, that they have over 10,000 uh, evangelical home churches in Cuba. We've known they've had thousands of home churches in China for years. Some of those home churches much longer than, much larger than this church uh, right here. So, so there's a place for home churches. There's a place for that. But the, very, but the church means assembly. And, and uh, so uh, for us to be a church then, and for us to show that we love the Lord then, and minister in, his, minister in love to him, then we have to be an assembly. All right, now. Let's go to verses, uh, the next verse. He says in verse number 11, And we declare that each one of you show the same diligence to the end, full, full assurance, to the end, full assurance of hope until the end. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, what's he talking about there? What, what's the diligence that we show? this diligence that he's talking about right here. I mean, how can you be diligent uh, to the full assurance of the hope uh, to the end, anchored to the very end in Jesus Christ? To the point where you know that you know that you know that you're saved. You know that you know that you know that you're in Jesus Christ. I mean, how can we be diligent to the full assurance of the hope until the end? Well, he showed us, remember back in... Chapter number two, he said back in chapter number two, verse number one, he says, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. I mean, one of the ways we're diligent to the full assurance of our hope to the end is to give earnest heed to the things which we have heard. What, what have we heard? Well, the, he was speaking of the things that, that he spoke of in chapter number one, that Jesus is the heir of all things, that Jesus is the express image of, of the person of God that Jesus is so much better than angels, that Jesus sits on the throne of God, that, that Jesus is at the right hand of God, that Jesus is God Almighty. We're to give earnest heed to those things lest we drift away. And then the second thing, if you look in chapter 4, verse number 11, chapter 4, verse number 11, he says, let us therefore be diligent to enter the rest. 
lest anyone fall according uh, to the same example of the Jews that fell in the wilderness. He says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. I mean, you will never be anchored deep in Jesus Christ in solid ground with full assurance of your hope unless you totally rest in him. You totally rest in the finality of the cross. You totally rest in the total forgiveness that you have in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you'll have full assurance. The other way that you have full assurance is, is verse number 10, uh, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, how do we get full assurance of our hope in Jesus Christ through ministry? How do you get that? I mean, how can I be fully assured of, my, assured of my hope in Jesus Christ through ministry? How does, how does that help me in, in knowing that I know that I know that I'm saved? How does ministry help me with that? Anybody know? You should know. When, when you minister, who's there with you when you minister? Jesus Christ is with you when you minister. More than ever, he's with you when you minister. When you do good things, when, you, when you're in this executing this labor of love on his behalf by ministering to the saints, you're going to experience his power. You're going to experience his presence. And if, and, and if you're not experience, experiencing his presence, if you don't have that full assurance of hope, I bet you one of the reasons is that you're, you're, you're taking care of only number one. You're not ministering to others. I mean, you want to you experience the the presence of the Lord, go teach a children's class. You'll experience the presence of the Lord. I'm doing a funeral for a lady tomorrow, and that lady had, had this ministry of encouraging others, and she did it from home. All she, what she did, she sent out cards, and I'm not talking about birthday cards or, or anniversary cards. She sent those too, but I mean, I got a card like once a week from her encouraging me telling me she was praying for me with scripture verses on that card. If you were to ask her why she did that, she did that because it blessed her. Why did it bless her? Because when she was doing that, she was experiencing the presence of the Lord and she was experiencing this full assurance in the Lord. I mean, I don't get up here and preach every Sunday for the big bucks. It's not the big bucks that I do it for. I get up here and preach because sometimes God anoints my preaching. And when he anoints my preaching... I go home with this sense, overwhelming sense of his presence in my life. And when I have that overwhelming sense of his presence, I am, have full assurance in the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And it helps me be anchored. I mean, you face a tough week and you've got, got to be anchored because there's going to be all sorts of things that are going to want to toss you to and fro and, and cause you to drift away from the Lord. So find some kind of ministry. I mean, it doesn't have to be a church ministry, but find some way you can minister to others. There's all sorts of ways to minister to others. I mean, look around this world. Look at all of the hurting people in this world. I mean, surely you can find a way to minister to somebody else. And, and, and again, it's a labor of love to the Lord, and, and you'll sense that full assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. And he says... And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope to the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and, uh, and patience inherit the promises. Now, what he's saying, hey, look at some of the Bible characters and how 
their lives evolved, their relationship with the Lord evolved, and how they served the Lord, and how they had this full assurance in the Lord, and how it took a lifetime sometimes for them to develop this this, uh, relationship that they had with the Lord. And now he's going to use the example, one of the great examples in the Bible, and, and that's the example of Abraham. So go with me to to verse number 13 and 14. He says, For when God made a promise, Abraham, for when God made a promise, Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore, when God made, I I keep, I've got lines here and I, I misread that. Let me read it again. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's pretty cool. He swore by himself. When you swear, you swear to a greater power. If you swear to God, you're obviously swearing to a greater power. Well, God has no God to swear to. So when he swore, he swore by himself. Now, listen to what he says. Saying this in verse number 14, surely I will bless you. Now, who's making the covenant here? God is making the covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a unilateral covenant. An unconditional promise. I will bless you. You know what? Abraham could have taken that to the bank right then and there. I will bless you, Abraham. You're going to be blessed. No matter what you do, you're going to be blessed. And multiplying, I will multiply you. Abraham's thinking he's, you know, he's 75 years old when this promise is made. And he's sitting there thinking, how in the world are you going to multiply me? I mean, are you going to clone me? I mean, I don't think Abraham knew anything about cloning then. But how in the world are you going to multiply me? How was he going to multiply Abraham? And through Sarah, he was going to have a son, right? That's how he was going to multiply him, a son named Isaac in his old age. And through Isaac would come the nation nation of Israel, and through his faith would come the people of faith. See, it's through Abraham's faith that we become the people of faith. He's he's our father just like he's the father of the Jewish nation because he's the father of faith. And so after, I like verse number 15 because it almost sounds humorous. He says that so after he had patiently endured, he obtained obtained the promise. Now we know enough about Abraham to know that he didn't always patiently endure, did he? I mean, Abraham, Abraham had some problems along the way. He had a lot of problems along the way. But his anchor held. I mean, he received the promise. I mean, why, why, did he, why did he patiently endure? Why did his anchor hold? You want to know why? Because Abraham was a great man of faith. A great man of faith. You know what? If you're a child of God, you're a great man or woman of faith. Might not seem like it sometimes. But God, if you're not there yet, you will be. You were destined to be a great man or woman of faith. Because where did Abraham get his faith? Faith is a gift from God, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Our faith is a gift from God. So if you've got weak faith, you don't have godly faith yet. Or you've got, you're, you're, you're suppressing that great faith that God's given you. Because God doesn't give us weak faith. He gives us great faith. Now, if it had been left up to Abraham to generate his own faith, 
he would have been in a lot of trouble. And his anchor would not have held. In fact, a couple of times it didn't hold. And he fell away a couple of times. And it, uh, probably more than a couple of times. We, we know of at least two times that are recorded in Scripture for us. You remember one of them, you remember when he was, he, things got bad in Canaan and, and they were starving and, and he said, man, we're going to starve to death if we don't get out of here. He didn't pray about it. He didn't consult the Lord. He went straight down to Egypt. Why did he go down to Egypt? He went down to Egypt because he didn't believe. He really didn't believe the promise of God. Let me ask you something. If God had promised him that he was going to have a son and he hadn't had a son yet, could he have died in Canaan? No. If he had really believed in God, he said, you know what? We'll just stay here till God provides the food because, because uh, uh, God's not going to let us die. He's promised a son. Well, well that's, that would take a lot of faith. But Abraham didn't have that faith yet. And so he went down to Egypt and he got himself in all sorts of trouble and he would have fallen away and he would have died in Egypt except what happened. God rescued him and, and, and brought him up out of Egypt. And you know what God did? He renewed his faith by doing that. I mean, God came down there and saved him. And Abraham went down there starving and he came back a rich man. Just sounds just like God. And then the other time, you remember when Abraham was about 87 years old and he had been, had the promise for about 12 years He'd been told he was going to have a son, and the son never came, and, and uh, he finally gave up on, on God, and what did he do? He, him and Sarah got together, and they had a son through Sarah's handmaid, uh, Hagar, and the son was named Ishmael. And, and when they had that young man, when they, conce when they uh, conceived this plot to have this, this, their own heir, uh, what were they saying about how much they believed God. They, they were, that was unbelief. You could, you could give it one word. It was unbelief. They did not believe God. They had given up on believing God. But had God given up on the promise? No, go back to verse number 14. Surely I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. You're not the one who's going to do this. I'm going to do it. And what did God do? I mean, he didn't strike them dead, did he? He could have, and he should have, might should have. But he didn't. I mean, what did he do? He came to them and appeared to them again, and he renewed the promise, and their faith was boosted all over again. You know, their whole life, their whole life, from the time God called them in the land of Chaldea to the time he took them to paradise, their whole life, God was building their faith. God was strengthening that anchor. You think maybe he'll do that for you too? I mean, you're, the thing that I love about guys like Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and David and all these characters in the Old Testament, they were men of God, men, men, of, men and women, just, the, the characters in the Bible were men and women just like us. And they had their faults and they had their failures. But who kept them going? God kept them going. And that tells me, you know, if God has made a promise to me, a sure promise to me that he's the one who's going to keep me going no matter how bad I falter at times. All right, now, let's go on to the next verse, verse 16. He says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all, of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now, what is he saying in all of that? Let me read it again. For man indeed swear by the greater, so they swear to God, and God has to, had to swear to himself. He swore by himself. 
an oath, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. You, that means if you swear to God, it's a done deal. Now, I don't think that's the way society is today, but there was a time in society when a man gave his word and he swore to God, man, that was put his hand on the Bible, he was going to tell the truth. I mean, people don't think that much of the Bible anymore, but, but there was a time when, when this was true, that if a man swore by God in an oath, then that was the end of all dispute. But he's using this as an illustration to show you how God handles our issues. If he makes a promise to us and he swears by himself, then that's the end of all dispute. Are you catching that? If God's made a promise to you, he's given you a vision, he's made a promise to you, and that can be salvation or that could be a vision for, for your future, your ministry, whatever. If he's made that promise to you, he can swear by no greater and he's sworn it and that's the end of all dispute. That's really good news. You understand when you start saying that somehow, you know, God can take this away if I don't live up to God's standard. You understand what you're saying? You're saying God's a liar because God has sworn He's given an oath. The promises that he has given us in this word of God are his word. His word in the sense that he's given an oath that they will come true. He says, for a man indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. Now who are the heirs of the promise? Who are the heirs of the promise? Well, Abraham was an heir of the promise. Uh, Sarah was an heir of the promise. Uh, Isaac was an heir of the promise. But guess what? You're an heir of the promise too. And he says, Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath that two immutable things, what are the two immutable things that he's talking about? That God has given his word and that God, it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to break his oath. God has given his word, and it's impossible for God to break his oath. Do you got that? Do you understand that? Well, let's apply that to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but will one day get eternal life. Is that what it says? Has eternal life. Did you catch that? God has sworn that. That's his word. That's his promise to you. If you have the faith of Abraham, if you, and where's that faith come from? It comes from God. You've been given that faith. If you have that faith and God says, if you believe in my son, if you believe in Jesus Christ, and that doesn't just mean you believe facts about Jesus Christ. That means you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you've put your trust, you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have everlasting life. How long does everlasting life last? Forever. Is, it, is there any condition there? And I have made that promise. I will bless you, God says. There's no condition except that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do whether you smoke or drink or fool around. None of that. I mean, those aren't good things. 
And those aren't the things that accompany salvation. I'm not saying that. But it has nothing to do with those things. That's why you're not under law. Because once you believe, you have been given everlasting life. It began the day you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and no one can take it away. And you know what you can do? You can go back down to Egypt. You can do just what Abraham did. You can go right back down to Egypt, and you can go just get rip-roaring drunk, do anything you want to do, and God's going to spank the stew out of you. Maybe. But he's, what's he going to do? He's going to get you out of there. He's going to come and get you out of there because he's promised that you have everlasting life. And that is an everlasting life down in that pit. And he doesn't want you to have that. So he's going to come and he's going to grab you and he's going to take you out of there. And he's promised that and he cannot lie. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation for those who have fled to refuge. You, know, you want to know what it really means to be saved? I think people get this wrong all the time. I mean, being saved isn't that you're a good little boy and a good little girl. I mean, that's what salvation produces, but that's not what salvation's about. You know how you got saved? You got saved because you ran as fast as you could into the arms of Jesus for refuge. And if you've never run into the arms of Jesus for refuge, you're probably not saved. I mean, you got so tired of this life and so tired of the, the, the defeats and, and frustrations and all of the evil in the world, the wickedness in the world, that you fled to Jesus Christ for refuge. And if you fled for him to refuge and you believed in him, just like, just like Abraham and Sarah believed in him, and even though their faith sometimes was faulty, they still believed in him. If you believe in him, then you have the promise, you have everlasting life. Those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Those who believe on Jesus Christ have everlasting life. It's set right before you. It's a hope. It's not a wish. There's a difference between a wish and a hope. A hope is a reality, something you're sure of. It's not seen, but you're sure of it. You're sure of Jesus Christ. Just, you're just as sure of Jesus Christ as you are sure of the person sitting next to you if you're born again. You're just as sure that you're going to be saved as you, you're as sure there is a hell. You're, you're sure of these things. You're sure of your hope in Jesus Christ if you fled to Jesus Christ for refuge. And he says, to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. Man, in this world today, we talked earlier and we prayed about the problems in this nation. You just look around, you bet you need an anchor. Man, you need an anchor really bad. If you don't have an anchor, this world's going to take you as far out into the deep end as it can take you and drown you there. That's the devil's goal, to destroy you. But man, once you have an anchor you're not going anywhere. And what's that anchor? That's the real hope you have in Jesus Christ. And what's it based upon what you do? No, it's based upon the word of God. It's based upon his promise. And he cannot lie. He can't break that promise. 
He says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Watch this. And which enters the presence. Notice the P is capitalized there. And it should be. Because whose presence are you entering in? You're entering into the presence behind the veil. Remember when we started our study in Hebrews, I told you that the goal of the author, his one goal was to do what? To get you into the very presence of God. How does that happen? It happens by, you know, pushing aside everything else but Jesus Christ. By running to him for refuge. By really believing and resting in him and saying, Only by his blood. That is the only thing that makes me worthy to come into the presence of God. All my works are as filthy rags in his sight. The only thing that impresses him is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the anchor of the soul. And that's what gets us behind the veil. Think about that for a minute. He's anchored you. He's anchored you in a, in a, you don't know where he's anchored you? When, when a ship sets sail and then it comes into port, it docks and it sets anchor in a, in a port city. What port city has he anchored you in? In the new Jerusalem in Zion, in the very presence of God, you've been anchored there behind the veil. And there's only one way that you got that veil, if you remember in the temple, kept the people out of the holiest of holies. But what happened when Jesus died on that cross? The moment he gave up the spirit, the veil was ripped in two from top to bottom. And the way was made for you to enter into the very presence of God. And you know what happens? God has opened the way for you to enter into his presence and he has anchored you there if you're in Jesus Christ. You don't see the heavenly city, but you're in the heavenly city right this very moment. You can live in his very presence, not just sometimes, but all the time. If you believe that, and if you're a great man or woman of faith, you're going to believe that. And if you're not a great man or woman of faith, you're going to be before this is over. God's going to make you that. It's his work. It's not your work. And you can drift away, he's going to pull you back. He's going to always pull you back. See, the anchor is our hope in Jesus Christ. The rope that holds the anchor is our faith. And and the only thing that can bust it away is, is, uh, is not having faith. But where do we get our faith? It's a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Where the forerunner has, verse 20, has entered for us even Jesus, having become our high priest, our high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll look at Melchizedek next week. Forever. Whose high priest is he? He's your high priest and my high priest. He's ripped that veil in half. He's anchored me in the new Jerusalem, in the very presence of God, and he ever lives to pray for me there. To pray that my faith holds, my rope doesn't fray and break. How many prayers of Jesus are answered? 
All of them. He's God. And if he prays my rope won't break and I'll stay anchored in his presence, I'm going to live forever in his presence because he promised it. And he cannot lie. He swore to himself way back in eternity past, George is going to make it to heaven. And nobody believed it. (laughs) But he believed it. And he made it happen. And he's going to do the same for you if you run to Jesus Christ for refuge. Paul in Ephesians warns us to not be tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine as if we're in this mighty sea that's pushing us around. James warns us that a man who doubts will be driven and tossed in the sea by the wind. Man, and i got to tell you, the tribulations of this world, the wickedness of this world, the evil of this world, they all have a tendency to toss us to and fro. And there seems to be this great danger that we're going to go adrift. Somehow we're going to, the rope's going to break and we're going we're to drift away from the Lord. But through the death on his cross, Jesus Christ made a way for us to be anchored in the holiest of holies, in the very presence of God. And I don't care what storms come our way. I don't care how bad the things get. I don't care what the devil throws at us or what the world throws at us. I don't care if our rope gets frayed. Jesus is going to be by our side. And when our faith seems to be faltering, he's going to renew our faith. All we have to do is run to him, believe in him, take refuge in him, because he's the anchor of our soul. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you for these great truths that, We can be anchored in your very presence behind the veil. Lord, if there's anyone in this room today that hasn't run to you for refuge, Lord, I know that if that's the case, they're adrift and floating and seem to be lost in this lost and dying world and I just ask today that you just touch them with with the great truth that, that your arms are open all they have to do is run and receive your love Father for all of us that, that are born again I just ask today that we're just reminded of just how secure we are in the arms of Jesus Christ how we're anchored there not just for a few years, not just while we're good or bad or whatever we do, Lord, but forever. You've given us everlasting life. Behind the veil in the great city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, Zion, a heavenly city. And we just thank you for all these great truths, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives through Jesus Christ. 
It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen.